Hello and welcome to On Air with Myrick O'Connell. I'm Howard Kaplan. Well, businesses are back to work, and things are different. Even if you were deemed essential and never closed, things are different. Whether you're a local retail store or a large manufacturer or construction firm, there are more variables now than ever. So we have as today's topic, how do business owners protect themselves in this COVID back-to-work environment, protect their employees and their clients in this new normal? Here to help answer this question are our guests today on On Air with Myrick O'Connell, Nick Anestisopoulos, a partner in the law firm of Myrick O'Connell, a member of their Labor, Employment, and Employee Benefits Group, and chair of the Higher Education Group. Jim Curteau, a vice president at Starkweather and Shepley Insurance. He runs operations for their Sturbridge location, focuses on areas such as manufacturing and construction, and has previously participated on panels with Myrick O'Connell. His firm, Starkweather and Shepley, with over 140 years' experience, offers commercial and personal insurance, benefit solutions, surety bonding, life and asset protection, and claims advocacy. It's been named 57th out of the top 100 commercial insurance brokerages in the U.S., a top 25 personal lines agency, and has 14 offices across Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, and Florida. Nick Anestisopoulos from Myrick O'Connell on the legal side. Do you want to just start us off, Nick, with a few words? Yeah, sure. Good morning. Thank you for having me again. Uh, and thank you for uh, Jim and the folks over at uh, Starkweather agreeing to do this. I think sort of as a jumping off point, sort of top of mind, uh, I think the obvious thing that needs to be said at the very beginning here is that the health and safety of our community, our colleagues, our families, and folks at the workplace is obviously top of mind here. And with that bedrock principle in place and acknowledgement, it seemed to us that there needed to be a discussion as part of this podcast series about uh, legal risks associated with COVID and whether it's the legal risks associated with returning to campus if you're an institution of higher education reporting back to work uh, or sort of even if you are running a program. I know Jim deals with youth sports. Uh, I recently was asked to sign a waiver for my son to continue playing AAU baseball, right? And so there is exposure, there is liability uh, in a variety of different areas. So we thought it would make sense to bring Jim on uh, and to talk about that because, you know, when we get calls from our clients, we sort of triage it, we think about it uh, with the client, we identify the potential legal issues that they have. And then at some point in the conversation, almost invariably in a hushed tone, perhaps, we ask, do you have coverage, <laughs> right? And so whether it's employment coverage, or other liability coverages, so wrapping all of these things up, I thought it made sense to sort of do something with Jim uh, and to give our clients and his clients something to be thinking about um, as uh, we all return back to whatever is going to be the new norm, whether it's, you know, continuing on to phase three and four here in Massachusetts or, you know, whatever state you're in what the next steps there are. So there's a couple of things uh, that I, I would like to point out because it's constantly evolving in terms of the guidance that we get from the uh, federal government and from the state. Uh, OSHA yesterday issued updated guidance relative to face masks uh, and obligations and sort of drawing the distinction between a face covering, a surgical mask, and respirators. Uh, and they sort of go through all of that. It is sort of interesting, even though they've been advocating for the use of face covers, uh, obviously it's not considered personal protective equipment. 
Um, and it was sort of interesting that they stressed that it will not protect the wearer against airborne transmissible infectious agents uh, because of the loose fit and the lack of seal. So uh, they are obviously important, but they they are pointing out that they uh, are perhaps of minimal value in terms of keeping folks safe. And so all of the other precautions need to be in place, the social distancing, the marking, uh, the constant cleaning. Uh, that needs to happen at the workplace. So I think that's an interesting point that they are making, that the mask in and of itself, and maybe Jim can talk about it, but the mask in and of itself isn't going to put you out of harm's way uh, in terms of liability. A few other things, OSHA recently indicated that they are not going to be promulgating regulations specific to COVID-19, but that didn't stop OSHA from issuing its first citation at a nursing home couple of weeks ago uh, and associated fines because of poor reporting and late reporting. Um, and as of a few weeks ago, there were 4,500 OSHA calls uh, alleging health and safety violations related to COVID. Um, so OSHA is going to be very busy um, locally and nationally. And I think there's some interesting litigation that is starting to percolate through the system. There's a lot of talk, and I know Jim's going to cover workers' compensation there's a real causation issue there with workers' compensation, but there are some there is some interesting litigation that's been percolating. Um, a group of employees sued McDonald's for not having a safe workplace. The allegations included not having enough PPE, not having enough clean PPE, not having enough sanitation, having poor markings, employees being on top of each other, and McDonald's filed a motion to dismiss and the court rejected that. So it's going to be, it will be proceeding. Um, again, causation is going to be an issue, improving causation. And I know Jim's going to cover that from an insurance perspective. But those are just some things that are sort of out there currently as we start to open. Thank you. That was Nick Anestisopoulos, a partner at Myrick O'Connell with offices in Boston, Worcester, and Westboro. So we turn now to Jim Curteau from Starkweather and Shepley Insurance. What are, this is the big question, what are some of the challenges companies are facing? And I think Nick referred to some of them, uh, Jim, with reopening after the long COVID-19 shutdown and having employees return to work. And how can they transfer some of that risk? Hi, Howard. Uh, first, thank you very much for, for having me today. I, I appreciate the opportunity to be on on your show. And, and this is a great opportunity and an important topic. Uh, Nick brings up a lot of great points. And in regards to the specific situation with McDonald's, that's an interesting situation from an insurance perspective because causation will be an issue there. But in regards to getting coverage to respond, in the insurance world, we look for what we refer to as a trigger, something that's going to trigger coverage to respond. And for claims made by employees against their employers, generally only covered in two areas, workers' compensation insurance and employment practices liability insurance. Workers' compensation insurance is designed to respond to an employee injury, and employment practices liability insurance is designed to provide coverage for lawsuits brought by employees alleging discrimination, wrongful termination, sexual harassment, or any other offense related to employment, hiring, or firing. If causation could be proved in this situation, there could potentially not be a standard policy that would respond to this specific situation. So in regards to the transfer of risk, it really depends upon the specific situation. I've had so many conversations, countless conversations with my clients over the last several months about business income, also referred to as business interruption coverage, which has been covered extensively throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. 
and coverage has not responded. Uh, because generally speaking, a fundamental prerequisite to trigger a business income or business interruption claim is that there must be direct physical loss or damage to covered property by an insured peril. In addition to this, many policies contain specific wording excluding viruses, bacteria, and other communicable diseases. So the question is a good one. Where can I find coverage that will respond? And the answer is it depends upon the specific circumstances of the occurrence. So just to follow up on what Jim is saying in terms of infectious disease, uh, in most states, and it, it does vary by state by state, uh, but an infectious disease is specifically carved out of your workers' comp coverage. I know that there is legislation in different states that is, is going to try to roll that in on a, on a obviously a state-by-state -state basis. And I know uh, Governor Cuomo in New York uh, has been very vocal about wanting to see that happen. So I think that may be something that folks need to follow as a trend. And obviously that'll have a significant impact uh, on the insurance industry and sort of premiums and Nick's absolutely correct. There's so much legislation out there and so many things that um, different states are proposing. It's very important to monitor the situation like Nick suggested. Now, with regard to third-party bodily injury allegations, Jim, related to COVID-19, how does a company protect itself and where is their potential coverage? Because sometimes that can get very confusing. Absolutely, Howard. That, that is a, a good question. In regards to potential coverage, uh, commercial general liability policies are designed to cover bodily injury arising out of your negligence. The claimant would have to allege the virus was contracted because of our insured's negligence and be able to prove how, when, and where it was contracted. This is a difficult standard to meet, but there may be certain examples, such as a customer at a restaurant contracts the virus that is later linked to an employee of the restaurant, or another example, a hotel guest contracts the virus that is later linked to a general outbreak at the hotel, or a third example from the construction industry would be a subcontractor's employee is working on a job site and contracts the virus that is later linked to an owner's construction site. Now, this goes into, uh, into Nick's world, but the claimant may not be able to show required causation to prove that the company is liable, but he can absolutely bring suit and you would need to defend yourself. We would look to the general liability policy as the policy to transfer that risk. Now you need to look at the policy and the associated exclusions, such as the bacteria exclusion and the communicable disease exclusion and the pollution exclusion, among others that may or may not be on your policy, to see how that may impact the coverage for those potential situations. And following up on what Jim is saying there, sort of at a very high level in terms of personal injury or tort liability, it's important for clients to be thinking about it in the context of standard of negligence. Do you have a duty? Did you breach that duty? Uh, was the breach but for an approximate cause of the harm? And did, did ultimately the plaintiff suffer an actual loss or damage? So. Uh, you have to be thinking about it in that context. And I think there's this interesting sort of idea out there as a source of duty. And I think a lot of companies, uh, schools, employers are sort of starting to sort of float into the space, this idea of a gratuitous undertaking. So it's the idea there is when you're making a representation that you're undertaking steps for the protection of a third party uh, and the person in reliance of that representation actually gets injured it turns into this potential duty and cause of action that they would have. 
Uh, and a space that I'm thinking about that is sort of higher education where they're trying, for lack of a better term, to lure students in and to assure them that there'll be distance learning and social distancing and staggering. And that could also apply at the workplace in terms of extending shifts and having staggered schedules and uh, making representations about accessibility to PPE and, and, and cleaning and cleaning logs and all those things. And then you don't actually deliver on it, right? Um, and so one of the things that we're telling our clients is to really think through existing policies or develop new policies. Um, and while we all are intending to do our level best, you need to be realistic um, and soften. The advice that I give clients is soften language in, uh, that, that is absolute in nature. Endeavoring to do these things is better than guaranteeing it from a, a liability and a defense point of view. And I don't view that as abdicating responsibility. I just think it's sort of harmonizing it with the realities that are out there, given the nature uh, of this disease and how it's contracted. Nick Anestisopoulos from Myrick O'Connell, thanks for that insight. We turn back now to Jim Croteau from Starkweather and Shepley Insurance. So what does a company do? And we've skirted around this, Jim, a little bit uh, in the first few minutes of the podcast. What does a company do if they have an employee who contracts COVID-19? Where do they turn? Howard, well, that's a good question. And the intent of the workers' compensation insurance policy, which is designed to cover a workplace injury, the intent of the workers' compensation insurance policy is not to cover all claims presented for communicable or contagious diseases. Generally speaking, for a claim to be considered compensable, it must arise out of and in the course of the employment. However, there may be certain exceptions depending on where and how and where a disease like the coronavirus is contracted. Consideration may be given based on arising out of employment or where an employer may place an employee in an increased risk situation. Some examples might include a healthcare worker that contracts the virus present in the healthcare facility or an airline or transportation worker that contracts the virus linked to a passenger, or a hotel employee that contracts the virus that is linked to a known contamination site, to name a few. And what about employees, Jim, that feel harassed or discriminated against due to a company's actions or policies in place associated with COVID-19? Howard, this is a big area right now. There's so many policies and so many procedures, and we've talked about them a little bit so far that there's a, a, so many variables now, there's a, there's a lot of things that can go wrong. And we would look to the employment practices liability insurance policy to respond to these types of situations. Employment practices liability insurance is designed to respond to workplace bullying, discrimination, harassment, and wrongful termination type situations. With everything going on, including furloughing, staggered schedules, potential working from home, making people come back to work if they were not working, and potentially making a similar wage from unemployment, all those scenarios could lead to suits of an employment nature. We want to make sure that this policy is in place and able to respond to certain situations. Yeah, we anticipate, I, I agree with Jim, we anticipate this being an area of our practice that is, is going to be exploding. You have uh, potential whistleblower claims, both in the OSHA and at the NLRB, um, ADA, ADEA, FMLA, uh, all come into play, particularly when dealing with accommodations. 
you have the emergency sick and the emergency FMLA leaves that are available and out there to employees. Um, and uh, as the guidance continues to evolve, both at the state and federal level, uh, on June 11th, uh, the EEOC amended its Q&A guidance um, and made crystal clear uh, that age discrimination is a real concern. The Age uh, Discrimination and Employment Act covers folks over 40, but the real emphasis is as it relates to older folks, uh, 65 and over, being at a higher risk. As we know, many of our colleagues fall into that age group, and the EEOC made it very clear that you cannot treat those employees differently or less favorably because of age in comparison to other employees at the workplace. Um, I've had a lot of employers call me well-intentioned, concerned about the well-being of their workforce, and asking me, as we start to bring people back, can we ask our older employees, and they're looking to accommodate and allowing them to work from home without loss of pay, with you know, maintaining benefits, all of that. Again, coming from a positive place, a place of concern, but taking a position that we're going to ask all of our employees over a certain age uh, and within this protected age group, we're going to treat them differently for their own good. And it applies to pregnancy, same sort of analysis for their own good. We're going to leave them home is going to trigger uh, a claim down the road or potentially could trigger a claim down the road. Um, so it's something that you have to be really careful about. Sure. Th- thank you, Nick and Jim, on that question. So, Jim, with all the decisions a business owner has to make associated with COVID-19, and there are a lot, how do owners, directors, and officers proactively protect themselves and find protection for potential negative results from their decisions? Where do they go? Howard, the proactive piece is having those procedures in place that Nick mentioned, having your your best practices, plans, and procedures in place, and also having a good directors and officers insurance policy in place. Because you are going to look to the directors and officers insurance for coverage associated with the financial impact of their decisions associated with COVID. Now, directors and officers insurance comes into play when stakeholders are suing the management because they did not account for the financial impact of COVID-19. They did something wrong from that perspective. Now, it is important to review the pollution exclusion and bodily injury and property damage exclusions for potential coverage gaps in that policy. So, Jim, we're going to take a little bit of a trip to another topic here. And this one is fascinating, I think, and very important. There are more and more employees working from home now. I think we all have family members who are, and more private information being gathered by employers. What potential areas of concern does that create? And what coverage is available to transfer that risk? Howard, if you think about your company that you work for and their firewall and their protective system that they have in place, and you compare it to what the average homeowner has for cyber protection, there's a big disparity there. There's a big difference there. And that does create some concern if you don't have the proper procedures and protocols in place. Hackers are exploiting the hysteria surrounding the virus. There have been millions, millions of people have received malicious coronavirus emails, many with COVID-19 or coronavirus in the subject line, And within those emails are updates contained via Excel documents and web links. And these are malicious and opening them can lead to system infection and loss of valuable data. Hospitals are seeing increased malicious activities with bad actors 
who are a bad actor's a cybersecurity adversary that is interested in attacking information technology systems. These bad actors are posing as representatives from the CDC or the World Health Organization or other governmental authorities. Other industries that are typically targeted in crisis include financial institutions, critical manufacturing, and biotech and pharmaceutical firms. And a properly constructed cyber liability policy should provide response to a breach and cover the costs from the resulting notification. Cyber policy should also contemplate business interruption due to a covered breach event. Cyber liability policies are a very good part of a risk management plan. Jim Curteau from Starkweather and Shepley Insurance. Nick Anastasopoulos from Myrick O'Connell. Any thoughts on that? I agree with, with Jim's assessment and the concern, uh, particularly as some of the accommodations that we were talking about from an EPLI perspective includes allowing people to work from home and sort of the efforts and, and firewalls that are put in place at work. Is that readily transferable uh, to a home office or, uh, or elsewhere? And particularly when you think about the information, depending on the industry, banking industry, medical industry, sort of the personal information and data that is gathered and what a breach could be. I know a lot of our employers have been calling us with concerns. And as I will share, uh, apparently I applied for unemployment insurance and was approved by the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Um, So apparently enough of my information is out there on the dark web. I actually had a conversation with the Undersecretary of Labor. It wasn't a breach at the DUA level. It is just sort of information that has been out there from previous breaches from credit agencies, et cetera. And the information is out there and they use that information uh, to apply for unemployment benefits. So it is definitely a concern and something that folks should be thinking about. Jim, what are some of the things that business owners can do proactively to help reduce their risk for COVID-19 related lawsuits and insurance claims and prevent these types of things from happening in the first place? Develop a plan. Develop a plan using the CDC guidelines, prepare the plan and implement it. Utilize guidelines from the CDC and the federal government as well as state-specific guidelines. Now be aware that state-specific guidelines will vary and Also, access the wealth of information on specific industry plans that are available. Have a health and safety checklist and make sure this is simple and effective. And focus on employee training. You can have the best plan there is out there without employees that know how to implement it. It doesn't do what you want it to do. So employee training is very important. Make sure your clients and your employees know what is expected of them when at your site. If you're having a contractor come on site to do work to your facility, Make sure there is a contract in place where you you are limiting your liability, where you're having them waive subrogation against you, and also that the contractor is following the all the appropriate CDC, federal, and local guidelines. And don't forget about all the other pre-COVID exposures that are inherent to your business. Stay aware of all the risk management areas that you need to be aware of. Communicate with your risk management team, including your insurance broker. So Howard, if I could just really double down and emphasize what Jim is talking about there at sort of a very high level um, in terms of defenses that are available uh, to companies, you know, we can take a look at contributory uh, comparative negligence, there's sort of causation, waiver and consent. And one of the things that we're talking about our clients is maybe even some of these policies or these agreements Uh, and contracts that we talk about an arbitration clause, which would sort of make it a lot easier and cheaper to defend. 
any claims that come forward. But one of the things that I really want to agree uh, with Jim on is the absolute need, and it really is not negotiable, hard stop, the absolute need to adhere to a standard of care. And so what do I mean by that? You know, CDC and OSHA have guidelines out there. So do state and local officials. It is imperative uh, that all of our clients uh, stay up to date, stay in tune, you know, and follow those. That would be your first line of defense in all of these cases. Um, if we think about from the start of uh, this pandemic, OSHA initially for a long period of time actually went on record stating that this is uncharted territory, I'm paraphrasing, but was allowing employers an opportunity to sort of figure it out as they went along. Well, that has changed. At the end of May, they essentially rescinded that previous position and said, OSHA is back to business as usual. This is not novel anymore. This isn't, you know, there is guidance out there. Um, And so as you defend against these claims, uh, the first thing any lawyer, your insurance counsel or your own counsel is going to ask you is about your adherence practices. And so what do you need to do to be able to show that? And it begins and ends, frankly, with documentation. It's important for your defense. But more importantly, even if there isn't a claim that comes out of any of that, it's important to document and document in detail so that you can review in terms of an after action plan and have an objective evaluation about how your adherence to in the development of your plans actually worked out. So you don't need to only document for defense purposes, but for an internal review after the fact, I think it's important to have that information as an organization. Now, there's also something called uh, reputational risk. Can you talk a little bit about that? Good point. So be aware of what's out there associated with your company. Be aware of what your employees are putting out there in social media. Be aware of the reputational risk associated with your operations. Good advice. Nick Anastasopoulos, any other advice? I I would just point out, as you think about your reputational risk, and and usually that takes the form of a policy, um, and uh, a lot of companies are rolling out social media policies and communication policies, I would just flag, obviously, they're important to have, uh, important to put in the hands of your employees, um, but I would point out potential uh, concerns around whistleblower. And if your employee is complaining about safety concerns or under the NLRB, at the NLRB and under the National Labor Relations Act, anything that could be viewed as protected concerted activity, uh, you just want to make sure that it isn't going to be viewed as uh, any action that you take if the employee is in violation of that social media policy, that it isn't viewed as a whistleblower uh, in retaliation for publicly commenting uh, on sort of the state of affairs as it relates to COVID. Good advice. So we've been talking with Jim Curteau, a vice president at Starkweather and Shepley Insurance Brokerage, Inc. He runs operations for their Sturbridge office location. Starkweather and Shepley has over 140 years experience, and they offer commercial and personal insurance, benefits solutions, surety bonding, life and asset protection, and claims advocacy. Jim, how can folks contact you and or Starkweather and Shepley Insurance? You can reach me at my phone number of 508 508- Three four seven six eight five zero. My email address is jcroto at starshep.com. That's J C R O 
T-E-A-U at starship.com. You can find out more about Starkweather and Shepley at www.starship.com. Thank you very much, Howard. Our pleasure. Thank you for being with us today. And we've also been joined by Nick Anestisopoulos, a partner with the law firm of Myrick O'Connell with offices in Worcester, Westboro, and Boston. How can folks contact you, Nick, with questions about what we've talked about today on the legal side? Howard, again, thank you for having us. I can be reached by direct dial 508-860-1482. My email is nanastasopoulos at Myrick O'Connell. Just in case folks don't know how to spell that, if you go onto Myrick O'Connell's website, I am the only anastasopoulos at the firm. On behalf of Jim and Nick, I'm Howard Kaplan. Thanks for joining us, and most importantly, stay safe. This podcast is brought to you by the law firm of Myrick O'Connell. It is intended to inform you of developments in the law and to provide information of general interest. It is not intended to constitute legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. This podcast may be considered advertising under the rules of the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. (laughs) 